cooks cook to nurture people. And, and that word nurture just resonated with me. And I found that I was a nurturer and this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to give people, you know, pleasure, right? And there was no better way to give people pleasure than through cooking. That was it. That's yeah. Yeah. That was it. That was the moment that resonated with me. And I felt that I was a nurturer and that was, that was going to be my career goal. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Before we get started, a few programming notes. First, this is the last episode of Season 4, but we'll be back soon for a special summer series before kicking off Season 5 in September. Stay tuned, we have some incredible guests lined up. This is also the last episode with my audio journey companion, editor Stan Hall. Stan was instrumental in making The Grand Tourist what it is, and he'll be sorely missed. Stan, thank you. My guest today has elevated and defined American food for a generation. His accolades are long, but I'll be quick. He's been called America's best chef by Time Magazine. He led an American team to win its first ever gold medal from the prestigious Bocuse d'Or competition. He's the only American-born chef to have multiple three stars from the Michelin Guide, and so much more. Chef Thomas Keller. Keller started his career washing dishes at his mother's restaurant in Palm Beach before moving to France to train under some of the best names of the day. Later returning to the States, he once worked for young Danielle Boulud at the Westbury Hotel in New York, and eventually on to his own high-profile venture called Raquel in 1986, which put him on the map. A young Tom Colicchio worked there, as did a young Andrew Zimmer. But it was a risky venture after Raquel in California's Napa Valley, where he revived a restaurant in a town called Yonville that made him a star, the French Laundry. More on that later. After that, he opened the now legendary Per Se in New York. While it suffered a fire early on, it bounced back to become a household name in fine dining. Today, his food empire includes multiple restaurants in Yonville, various iterations of his Bouchon Bakery and Bistro, the popular surf club restaurant in Miami, with lots more in the pipeline. Above all, Keller is known for his precision and for elevating the American dining experience, all built upon his foundational French training with a heavy emphasis on ingredients. As you'll learn, for Keller, being a chef might start in the kitchen, but it certainly doesn't end there. As someone who seems to have hit his stride after a staggering 40 plus years in the business, I wanted to learn as much as I could from this da Vinci of the dining room. I caught up with Chef Keller from Yonville. I wanted to just sort of start a little bit at the beginning and tell me what was life like for you as, as a young Thomas Keller in, in Palm Beach in, in the 80s? <laughs> well, um, it's hard to remember sometimes, you know, it's been so long ago and so many things have happened between now and then. It's a different different time, different place, and, and, and a different person when you, when you start to think about it, how you've evolved you know, over your entire, you know, life and then, and then your career uh, and what has impact you and the benchmarks and the deviations, uh, the trials and tribulations, the challenges and failures. Um, and then, of course, the successes. Um, I think in the 80s, you know, for me, I think, you know, going back um, when I started kind of cooking semi-professionally at the Palm Beach Yacht Club, which was actually in, in the early 70s, when you think about it, I 74, 75, working for my mother, um, which was, you know, a, a very 
important uh, time for me and, and certainly in my career. Uh, I was very comfortable in a kitchen because I've been in kitchens many, many times before. My mother ran restaurants as a single parent. My brother Joseph and I spent many evenings in those in those restaurants um, doing homework and, and, and getting dinner. Um, and then, of course, my brother Joseph always wanted to be a, a chef, and I had no uh, aspirations you know, or goals in that way. And but learning, you know, learning the kitchen, feeling comfortable in the kitchen and basically washing dishes, which, you know, which I learned the six disciplines, you know, which have impacted my life. You know, I wrote that in our new cookbook, The, the French Andy Per Se. Um, and that was really, you know, a pivotal time for me because I, I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed the the intensity. I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the spontaneity. I enjoyed the uh, the, the effort that it took, um, the focus, the energy, the stamina, um, you know, the excitement, you know, of, of the rush of, 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 you know, guests coming in and tickets coming in the kitchen and, 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 and trying to balance everything and organize everything, um, you know, be efficient, be effective in, in your tasks and your movements. Um, and that was really, really exciting. It was, it was like being on a, on a, on a baseball team or a football team. Uh, I found my way to, uh, Rhode Island, uh, Newport, Rhode Island, 1976 for the tall ships. Again, still not not committing to the profession, um, but just having a good time doing it. And I found myself being successful at it, um, being part of a team. You know, young chef de partie um, in in Newport um, with a group of others. You know, like minded. Uh, young young individuals, you know, working in a very very busy restaurant. Again, you know, the challenges of of the day, you know, getting set up. You know, it was always about that 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 five thirty, right? That goalpost where you wanted to make sure you got everything ready by five thirty, and then bang, you know, the the game started, and uh, and you were part of a you know part of a, a, a team, right? That was fielded by by the chef and everybody had to perform, you know, in their position, right. Their disciplines. Um, and we all had to do it simultaneously so that, you know, the, the food came up, you know, in a uniform fashion, um, that was able to serve the table. Uh, and that was really exciting. Um, and I found, I found, you know, more and more, um, opportunities, uh, in the profession, uh, even though I still hadn't really embraced it as, as my career goal. Uh, 1977 found our way back to Newport, Rhode Island, in this case to Narragansett, working for a um, uh, French chef um, who was running a, a private beach club uh, in Narragansett called the Dunes Club, Roland Hennen, uh, who became my third mentor, my mother my first, a mentor my brother my second, and then Roland my third. So what was it like? What was it like in Palm Beach in 1980? Which was original question. Um, it, it, it wasn't very. It wasn't very profound for me. I, I, I left. I left Palm Beach probably permanently in the uh, in the early 80s. Although I found my way back and forth. That that you know northern route in the summertime, southern route in the wintertime. But I, I I think I finally left permanently in 1983. Um, before that, I was going to a small restaurant in um, after you know sorry uh, after the Dunes Club and after after this revelation and understanding that this was going to be my career choice um, and, and and absorbing as much as I could and learning as much as I could you know I found my 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 way to Catskill uh, New York um, and spent three summers there working for a lovely uh, French couple um, just practicing right and and learning. 
basically by my own. Uh, Chef Hennon was still around. He was still my mentor. Um, he actually lived with me for a short period of time as he was starting to transition from uh, um, his um, his career in uh, in the profession into academia. He uh, started teaching at the CIA, and which was not far from um, Catskill. And so he spent a couple months with me while he made that transition. And it was wonderful, again, learning um, from somebody who was so skilled and so knowledgeable and had such experience and me just practicing. And tell me a little bit about the that part in your life when you, you moved to France and, you know, I'm always fascinated as someone, whenever I speak to uh, anyone in the food world and they, they, you know, usually very young, like go off uh, to France sometimes for the first time and, you know, completely work in a completely different culture yet usually sometimes uh, in a kitchen, you know, in a kind of removed way. Um, what was that like for you? When did you decide that's where I got to go and this is what I have to well, do? Well, I decided that really early on. I mean, once I, you know, once I embraced this idea of I was going to be a professional chef, you know, where do you go? And, you know, Roland Hennon was French. So, you know, that was my career path. I wanted to be a French chef, right? So I studied, I studied, I studied everything about France, everything about the great French chefs, you know, not just of that generation, but generations before, uh, you know, learning the, the repertoire, you know, of 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 of, of the chefs and, and Escoffier, and you know, just really absorbing as much as I could. But with this journey to to go to France, and and Chef Hennon was a big proponent in that, and and helped helped me get to that um, get to France. Uh, many 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 people, not just Roland, but there were so many people involved in uh, supporting me in my goals. And, you know, just to say, you know, I am blessed to have had so many people my entire career, including today, you know, that have supported me um, and supported the vision and supported the purpose of what we do. And I'm very thankful for for all of them, because as you know, you're not going to get anywhere in life just by yourself. You really need to have um, an extraordinary team of individuals who, you know, um, who, who really responsible um to supporting you um to achieve goals that are beyond what you could do by yourself and you know the true the true meaning of team right um and so really that was wonderful and so there were so many people who helped me get to france uh but but france was the place i needed to go um it certainly was difficult because um i was trying to actually secure a job before I actually arrived in France, which at the time was a very difficult thing. Most people said, just come on over, you'll get a job. Don't worry about it. You know, but I was, I was, you know, of a mind that really wanted to be responsible and make sure they had a position to go to. And, and I found a place in Arbois, um, yeah, which is in the Jura, Western France. And uh, I, I, I arrived there and it was not at all what I thought it was going to be. And I, I left within three days and went to Paris um, was able to stay there because of a good friend of mine, um, Serge Raoul, who became uh, a partner later on in life, and uh, and studied. Um, well, not sorry, not studied, but um, uh, did exactly what um, people had uh, had told me to do before I got there, was just come over and start looking for a job. And I did that, you know, throughout Paris, and, and finally found my way uh, into Taillevant, which was uh, a three star restaurant at the time. Uh, uh, Claude Delini was the chef. Um, uh, uh, Jean-Claude Vrinant um, was, of course, the owner. And it was just a wonderful environment to be in. Um, and you saw what, what made French, the great French restaurants great, and that was consistency. Um, I, you know, I, I was of an age as well and, and of level of experience that I wasn't overwhelmed 
uh, with just being there, I was able to really study and learn the details of what was going on. You know, I, I knew how to make a, a veal stock. I knew how to make a Bordelais sauce. But what made them great um, was really their attention to detail. And part of that detail was their their ingredients. And that was that was really important. And it's something that when you thought about it, you know, in the in the early 80s, um, still in the United States, you know, ingredient, ingredients were still difficult. Great ingredients were still difficult to source. And, um, and, and I realized that, you know, that was what it was all about. And seasonality had nothing to do with the four seasons that we always associated with. Seasonality had to do with the individual ingredients, right? Asparagus is in season for this period of time. And it may be only three weeks coming from this specific supplier, that grows a specific size asparagus for Taiwan. That's all they use. And so for three weeks, they have that asparagus and that's it. You know, in, 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 at home, you see asparagus from, you know, from early spring until almost into the fall. Um, and it's not really, it's not really specific to the asparagus. It's specific to the environment that it can be grown in. And sometimes it doesn't make, doesn't, doesn't add to the quality of the asparagus, just the environment. You have to have that specific terroir that, is so important to anything that's grown and or and or raised. So, I, so learning the ingredients is as really an important part of what I was able to do there, and, and and really focus on that. And then execution, right? It's always about execution. So when you think about this, the simple equation that cooking really is, and and, and just to simplify it, because people think it's very complicated, it is not complicated whatsoever. It's about ingredients and execution, right? So being able to get the best ingredients, and that's what makes the the best restaurants right, is, is, is somebody who understands that and be able to take that asparagus, not, not, not screw it up, right? I mean, just this beautiful asparagus that comes in the back door and, and treat it with respect and, and serve it to the guests in, in, its, in its most perfect form, if that's possible. And that's a true understanding of a great restaurant. And, and that's what I really learned at Taillevant. And, and spending my, that, that year and a half in France, you know, um, really gave me my college education, if you will, I didn't go to I didn't go to culinary school, um, so that was kind of my my college education and being in France and learning about the ingredients, uh, learning the language, uh, learning 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 about the different restaurants that I worked in, the the purpose, the focus, the chefs, um, and that was just really for me a magical time that you know helped me come back to this country. And lead one of the um, one of the few La and Lua restaurants in New York City at the time. Uh, I was the first American chef to um, be hired for uh, a La Lua restaurant. La Lua restaurants were those great restaurants, the Cote Basque, the Caravelle, uh, and I was hired at La Reserve, uh, and uh, and spent um, spent about a year and a half there. And 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 you know, I was coming back from France with you know a um, I guess a souped-up ego, if you will, and I, I realized that, you know, I realized at that time it was a very, it was a very critical learning um, moment for me because I realized that, you know, egos don't really get you anywhere. I mean, you really have to be there to be to be working and, and, and understanding. So I, I had to revert back to what I learned in the beginning of my career when I was standing in front of a dishwasher how important teamwork was, um, and 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 the teamwork went beyond the kitchen. Right. I was so focused on the teamwork in the kitchen and what I was want, wanting to do and kind of lost track of what the, the, the dining room or the or, or the ownership wanted. Um, and, and, of course, I was booted out of there within a year and a half. And, and I, you know, I, I, I calmed down and said, OK, I've got to get back to 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 the fundamental purpose of what I do 
and and and, and establishing this opportunity to um, work within with within the restaurant, and that means I, I have to be able to work with the dining room team, the kitchen team, um, the administrative team, wh- whoever the wine team. You know, the entire team is important, and, and understanding that. You know, I, I back into this idea of running a sports franchise, right? So that's where really the sports franchise analogy really became important for me. Because if you think about a football team, you have the offense, you have the defense, you have the special teams, everybody is there to do a specific thing, and we all have to support one another. And so from that early period in the mid 80s, um, you know, it really became something that, uh, that was really, really important to me. Before we return to Chef Keller, a word from our sponsor, Janice AC. In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janus AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for more than 40 years, the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects, from Andre Fu and Gabellini Shepard to Piero Lissoni. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janus AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. While Janus AC has an abundance of incredible furnishings available, one can't forget about the finishing touches that complete every space. The accessories. Janus AC has accessories for both indoors and out, from minimal hurricane lanterns and vases to barely there bar carts and extravagant ceramic sculptures. My favorite would probably be the Ambrosia collection of porcelain pomegranates. These high-gloss objets come in various sizes, and can be used to add a bit of fantastical splendor to any patio or living room. Make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E.com. And I read somewhere that you you worked for Daniel Balud at a at a hotel at some point. Is that true? Yeah, we worked together. Danielle was um um, so this was one of the, you know, again, back in the eighties of that period of time, New York was full of, of, of chef consultants, right? The great chefs, all Alan, Alan came over from, um, from Paris to, uh, consult at the Meridian, which was at the, uh, at the Maurice, uh, restaurant, which was at the, the Parker Meridian hotel. Um, uh, that was, that was one of the great things, um, the, the, the chef from Negresco and, um, oh, Jacques Maxima came over to consult, uh, on a restaurant in, uh, in New York city. There are quite a few, um, um, three-star well-known French chefs who came over to consult in different properties. Uh, and at the, the Polo, which is the Westbury hotel at the time, um, we, um, they, Brought over Patrice Patrice Boily, who was the chef de cuisine um, at Moulin de Bougin for Roger Verger. Um, then he brought Danielle from Lyon, who was working with. Um, um, actually, no, he brought Danielle up from the French embassy. Danielle came over from Lyon to work in in in, in Washington D.C. at the French embassy. He brought him to New York, uh, and they opened the Polo. And it was one of the most exciting restaurants to work in at the time. Uh, so Danielle was the executive sous chef. Patrick Bolli was a chef de cuisine, and there was just a you know a plethora of young chefs who um, you know became well known chefs uh, during that period of time. You know people like David Bolli, 
um, Mark Poitavin, Alpha Portali, these kinds of chefs who worked in these types of restaurants, uh, working for consultants and they're working for chefs like Patrice, really, you know, began to take over and this became the first generation of great American chefs. And, and how was, how was uh, Chef Balud at Like Us a Boss as someone, you know, run, working there? That, I think Patrice was certainly much more of a fig- figurehead in terms of your chef to cuisine. You know, your sous chefs at the time weren't as, um, uh, I guess, weren't as um, impactful as, as Patrice was. And Patrice was a jokester, so you always had to watch your back for fear of him doing something, whether it was you know, pulling down your, your pants while you're trying to, you know, saute a piece of fish or throwing cayenne pepper on the grill while you're trying to cook. I mean, those were the things that Patrice would have fun with. Um, and Danielle, Danielle, you know, certainly we were all very young, you know, including Patrice, and we were there to, to really um, work hard, um, try to express what was at the time Nouvelle Cuisine, right, um, in, into New York. And, uh, and established restaurants that had great reputations um, based on this French cuisine uh, that was taking hold in New York City. So I've been fascinated by uh, one of your first restaurants uh, with your name somewhat on the door, Raquel. Uh, tell me a bit about that. Well, you know, Serge Raoul became a, a great friend. I worked for him for a short period of time in those early 80 years when I was going back and forth between New York, um, uh, Florida, and or Catskill at La Rive. Uh, one, one winter I came down to New York city instead of going back to Florida and, and worked at as chef de cuisine at Raul's and we became, we became friends at that time and, uh, and still maintain our friendship very closely till today. Um, and Serge was very, um, uh, generous in uh, offering me, uh, his apartment in Paris when I left the, the restaurant in Arbois. And I moved to Paris. I needed a place to stay, and Serge offered me the Paris, his apartment in Paris. I stayed there for a year and a half, um, which was which was great, and I was very grateful for him. I, I came back, as I told you, I went to La Reserve. Uh, that was a, a short-lived. Went to a restaurant called Raphael, um, which was a much smaller restaurant, more in line with my my abilities and my uh, and, and and my new um, my new attitude um, from from the the challenges of the failure at, at La Reserve. Uh, and Serge and I, you know, rekindled this idea of opening a restaurant together. And that's that's where it began. Uh, and we opened Raquel uh, in 1986, I believe it was, uh, on the corner of Varick Street and 7th Avenue South. Um, wonderful restaurant. Uh, it was at a time when, you know, restaurants and young chefs of my generation were starting to open restaurants. Again, David... Uh, David Boulay, you know, opened Montrachet with um, with through Nearport. Uh, for Portali, you know, had opened Gotham Bar and Grill with Jer- uh, Jerry Kutchmer. Um, you know, there were a couple other chefs um, that had been had been opening restaurants as well. And we, we opened Raquel. You know, so there was this time of of uh, of great. Um, uh, I, I think just um, uh, great opportunities, right? the young American chefs, you know, leading restaurants. And you, you have to, you have to imagine the transformation from what was traditional where, you know, maitre d's um, would own restaurants. And you think about the last great maitre d' who went from being a maitre d' at the colony to, you know, owning a restaurant that was Sirio Maccioni uh, and Le Cirque, 
right? Um, that's kind of what happened. Well, that was the transition in, 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 the, in the progression and evolution of restaurants. Well, now we had chefs, you know, who were opening their own restaurants. And this was, this was, this was really, uh, you know, very encouraging, you know, for any chef. And you think back at that time and Charlie Trotter in Chicago was, I think, you know, close to being one of the first um, young chefs to open a fine dining restaurant and challenging the great chefs of Europe with the quality uh, of the experience that they'd have at, uh, at Charlie Trotter's, you know, in Chicago. And, and you saw that we all saw that and said, we can do that. You know, so there was this moment in time where, you know, if you were a, a chef and, you know, had the ability and the quality of what you did, um, and, and then, of course, the support of those around you, opening a restaurant became something that was doable, right? You, you, it could become reality. And, and Raquel was, was that for me. Um, and, uh, and Serge and I opened that restaurant in 1985 or 1986. And uh, it's a great fanfare. And uh, we, it was a wonderful contemporary restaurant serving, you know, uh, French-inspired American food. And, you know, that was, that was great. And, you know, it had a different type of attitude, right? We had a piano, we had a, a video camera that, you know, that, that displayed 7th Avenue South, right? We put a camera on the roof of the building. So you had the sense of being in, you know, being in New York, right? That whole vibrant kind of traffic pattern, you know, and all these things going on in the street, you know, right above the bar. So you had the sense of New York and, music and you know now you know in a, in a downtown area where you know it was just a different type of restaurant than what we was typically used to um if it was going to be a great french restaurant which we all worked out previously where there were all the la Le restaurants you know they were a different style and so now we had this new kind of vibrancy in in young american chefs um you know realizing their goals and reinterpreting what they wanted to do uh, with food still is an important part of the experience for the guests. And when you mentioned uh, the, the shift of like a maitre d' owned restaurant to uh, a chef owned restaurant, what do you attribute that shift? Why do you think that happened? Well, it's, a good, it's a good question. I think that we, we became good at what we did. I mean, our country started to realize and, 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 and chefs, young chefs started to realize that they could do this. You know, I mean, you look, we, we were inspired by the great chefs of France. And if you talk to chefs of, of my generation, and you know, and, and I, I said the great chefs of France, um, because that was our inspiration. But there's a book called The Great Chefs of France, and all of us own that book. <laughs> and 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 it wasn't necessarily you know a recipe book; it was a storybook. Um, you know, it was a lifestyle book about these chefs, and we all wanted to be that. And so that was, I mean, there were so many things that happened in that period of time. Um, and you know, of course, yeah, we have you know we have you know we have Daniel Boulud, you know, from France. We have Jean George Vanderick and from Alsace. I mean, we had you know these young French chefs also in this country, and I would consider them to be part of this movement as well. Just because they were they were French doesn't mean that they weren't part of that American explosion, right? And 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 not only part of it, um, but they helped fuel it, right? They they were they 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 were. You know, they were as inf instrumental as any of us were in in this opportunity that started to present itself. Um, you know, there was a chef named Jean-Louis Paladin. I'm not sure if you remember the name Jean-Louis Paladin from um, uh, from France, the youngest two-star Michelin chef uh, who moved to Washington, D.C. and opened a restaurant at the Watergate um, called 
you know, and, uh, and yes, and okay. yeah, I, knew, I knew the name sounded familiar. I read a big story about yeah, the Watergate Hotel. Right. And, and John Louis came here and said, you know, basically said, I don't understand where are you getting your food from? And we all, and we all started, we all started to think about that, right. As young cooks, like, where's our food coming from? Jean Louis really reconnected us with the idea that we needed our farmers, our fishermen, our foragers, our gardeners, and we needed to 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 find them and to represent them and to respect them, uh, to champion what they do because without them we have nothing. Um, you know, Alice Waters at the same time here in, in California was doing kind of the same thing. Um, you know, and 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 the two of them together really created this opportunity not just for our farmers, fishermen, foragers, and gardeners. But for, for us, young chefs, to realize that this is, as I pointed out in the beginning of a conversation, one of the, thing, one of the things I learned, at, learned about in France was just this idea of ingredients. And in New York City, that was something different. I mean, New York City always had these great French restaurants. So we had a different kind of connection to France. And, and, and there was a company called Flying Foods that would bring in, bring in products from Runji Market you know, every week. And you know, it was an extraordinary thing. But this, look at this you know, in, in a global or national way. And realizing that, you know, we have our own ingredients here, right? We have our own farmers, our own lamb farmers in Pennsylvania, right? We have our, you know, our, our, our fishermen, you know, up and down the coast, right? Um, we have we have this opportunity to, to, to find, you know, the beautiful asparagus and carrots and, and all these different things that we were so inspired, you know, with in France. And, and that really kind of gave us this opportunity. So there's a lot of different things that happened during that period of time. Uh, that saw the explosion of the American food culture. Before we return to Chef Keller, a word from our sponsor, Ford Street Studio. Ford Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. One of Ford Street Studio's luxurious offerings is the brand's Thai silk collection of rugs and tapestries. It's a rare and exclusive production that involves hand-reeled silk spun into thick cord or soft yarns to create original designs by founders Janice Provisor and Brad Davis. These artistic designs are then produced by a team of women in a remote village in northern Thailand, where they do everything from grow and harvest the silk, prepare the yarn, string the looms, to weaving the carpets. The high-gloss effect of Thai silk makes it perfect for flat-woven creations that are ribbed, cable-knit, or brocaded, or for a more traditional cut-pile carpet, or even an exotic fur-like shag. And just like all offerings from Fort Street Studio, the Thai silk collection can be customized to your needs in color and shape. To create your own heavenly soft Thai silk rug, visit fortstreetstudio.com. And I read somewhere that uh, for Raquel that that someone mentioned that you 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 sort of insisted that the staff you know eat together at a kind of like family meal to sort of like you know discuss topics uh, at work and and this kind of like conviviality. First of all, is that true? Um, and, and you know, for me, I can see where it comes from because clearly, like you have this like you know a, a team or like atelier kind of culture. But did uh, tell me a little bit about that, and 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 of course, sure. I mean, unity was very important. I mean, we had, we had eaten together. Um, you know, my time in France, we always ate together, and so, you know, that was a very important thing—the family meal. Um, and so, family meal, 
you know, whether it was at, uh, at La Reserve um, or at Raphael's um, or at Raquel was a very, and still today, right? It's a very important part of our day, making sure that we're preparing, you know, a, you know fresh, highly nutritious, um, diversified uh, menu uh, for our team. It's just what we do. We do it every day. We do it twice a day um, at, at the French Laundry. We have forever. I mean, all of our restaurants. Um, and some of them do breakfast, uh, lunch, and dinner. So um, it's it's an important important part of our day, you know, to get together uh, to support one another. You know, we have a we have what we call a buddy system, where um, you know the dining room staff will make the plate for their buddy in the kitchen. So that's not the line is not so long, right? You think about a hundred people going through line or fifty people going through the line. It just goes much faster if you have a buddy that you're making their dinner for, their plate for. Um, you know, so it just it, it, it it's a opportunity again for us to take a moment, and you know sometimes the day is different. Sometimes those moments are are shorter than others, but at least have the opportunity to eat something, to eat a nutritious meal um, before service. You know, together as a family. And when you went off to to California afterwards, and you worked at a hotel before the French Laundry chapter in your life. Um, first, why, why California? And, and if you could take me back to, you know, what the food culture was like out there at the time. Sure. You know, the, the, it's, it's, it's a good question. I, I think coming to California. So, so why did I come to California? Um, first part of the question is I came to California cause I really couldn't find, um, you know, a, a, uh, a solid foundation, uh, to cook from in New York. Raquel failed. Um, Serge and I agreed that we were gonna. It was gonna become Cafe Raquel, right? This was at a time in the late '80s um, when, of course, the stock market crashed. Right? There was a financial right upheaval, uh, and people um, wanted to. You know, the 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 trend in in dining was more casual, right? And Raquel was considered more or less more fine dining or casual fine dining. But casual didn't really mean anything as as it relates to food or service. Casual had to had to, was defined by you know the price points of the restaurant. Uh, it's funny how how you know the the this trend happened, and so you know people wanted less expensive food, right? So it became part of what it was, and so Raquel went from from Raquel to Cafe Raquel um, with um, with with still quality food, but less expensive. Um, and I decided that I wanted to continue with my 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 purpose of, of achieving high level of, of success in fine dining. Um, so Serge and I agreed that I would depart, and I spent a year in New York just consulting and looking around, trying to find uh, you know a place to land, and I didn't. Uh, some friends of mine, some very close friends of mine, were moving to California, um, and I thought that would be a great opportunity. And there was a gentleman named Bill Wilkinson. I'm, I'm sure you don't know who Bill Wilkinson was, but, but a very, um, very important part of the, um, hotel, um, evolution. Uh, and interestingly enough, I, I talked to Bill Wilkinson early on when we opened Raquel, cause he was getting ready to open a new hotel in LA. And he was, he was, he was curious if I'd want to come to LA to be his chef de cuisine, not knowing that I was part of the ownership of Raquel. And of course we had a nice conversation, but I thanked him very much. And then four years later, when the hotel was transitioning from their first chef to another chef, um, you know, I had this opportunity to go work for Bill. Um, friends were going out there. So I felt, I felt it was the right time. 
right? There was nothing left for me in New York. Um, Raquel, Raquel had closed uh, from being Raquel taken over by um, a group. Um, uh, to and a Andrew Zimmerman was one of the was one of the one of the, the gentlemen in that group. Um, and we we're, we're friends today, and it was just wonderful to see them, you know, have their hand at it, even though it, it didn't it didn't prove to be successful either. Uh, nonetheless, we moved to California, and I worked for Bill Wilkinson. And Bill Wilkinson um, was the first um, hotelier in America to open a, a hotel that was um, called a boutique hotel. So the boutique hotel phase uh, began with Bill when he opened Campton Place in San Francisco, uh, and then he followed that with Checkers in Los Angeles, where I became the chef. Um, uh, the executive chef of the hotel. And, you know, it, it didn't last long for me. I, I wasn't the kind of person that wanted to be an executive chef. Um, I didn't really, you know, I really didn't enjoy the, all of the meetings that had to happen. You know, I didn't, I didn't enjoy the, the room service portion of it the, or the, or the banquet portion of it. Um, so it was, it was, or the breakfast, lunch and dinner portion of it. There were so many things that I didn't really like. Um, so it didn't, it didn't really work out, you know, Bill eventually sold the hotel before I left. And, uh, there was a, um, a company called Kimpton who came in. Kimpton was part of, um, Lufthansa, uh, and there was a German, a, a German general manager. Um, and I didn't, we didn't get along very well and, and I left, uh, and funny enough, years later, um, after I opened French Laundry, I met his wife in San Francisco, who uh, who rekindled um, our relationship with the uh, with the introduction of a gentleman named Jim Hubert, who started First Republic Bank, and uh, and we and that became our bank. She became a very proponent, a very um, a strong supporter of our restaurant. And I remember when um, when Volker and Valerie came to French Laundry the first time, and. Volker came into the kitchen. I had to shook his hand. I said, thank you for firing me because had you not fired me, I wouldn't be here today. So it's funny how these things in your life, which are seem to be devastating at the moment, turn out to be, you know, a, a new opportunity as a new door opens. Um, so what was new? So that was the reason I left. I, I left New York. Um, uh, really, there was opportunity in, in Southern California. Friends of mine were moving there. So I had some support uh, in moving there. Um, the hotel, the, the job didn't turn out very well. Um, um, uh, but, I, but, you know, being in California led me to the French laundry and, and kind of the rest is history, so to speak. What was the food, food culture like in California? It's a good question. I, I, you know, I don't really, I don't really adhere to this idea that there's, you know, California cuisine, you know, which is, you know, it's, I mean, what is California cuisine except fresh food, you know, prepared simply. Um, and, and that's just, you know, that doesn't have to do with California. That I think it has to do with, the, you know, general idea or philosophy about how you want your food cooked. We all want fresh food. Um, and, you know, we all work with fresh food and we have for, you know, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, for me decades and, you know, certainly in our profession for, for generations upon generations, um, you know, chefs have always been working with, with the freshest food or at least the quality chefs have always been working with the freshest food possible. Um, and and so you know this idea that that California cuisine was something different than you know other cuisines, um, whether it was Italian or French or Spanish, you know, or Southern cuisine or whatever. It it, it was just it was an odd it was an odd 
an odd idea that I couldn't really make the connection with. Nonetheless, I mean, you you know, you had Alice Waters here, you know, a, a, an extraordinary chef with an extraordinary philosophy and, and, and deep rooted commitment, right, to to younger generations. And that's really where, you know, the focus needs to be on younger generations and giving them the opportunity to experience, right, the, uh, you know, um, really, really fresh food, you know, growing food, right, being in a garden as, as she does. Um, so that's been that's been a really very very um, influential movement on Alice's part, and and that's been associated with California cuisine. So that's all good. When Chef Keller opened the French Laundry in 1994, he was already in his late 30s and experienced much, but it was just the beginning for his career. When the restaurant was still young, serving what Keller described as progressive American cuisine with French influences, the New York Times remarked that it was already considered the best in the country and wrote this little gem of an opener for a feature about it. Quote, The people who work in Thomas Keller's kitchen here do not wear baseball caps backward or forward. There are no scraps of food on the floor. In fact, for a kitchen that is in the middle of preparing dinner, there is an eerie quiet. A lot of people do remark when they first come here about how quiet it is, said Stephen Durfee, the pastry chef at the French Laundry. It's the strictest kitchen I've ever worked in. You have to take care of your own equipment, wash, and dry it. No one ever dried anything in any kitchen I've worked in. Since then, the French Laundry has continued to evolve. In 2004, they installed geothermal heating. And in 2018, they completed a stunning renovation by the famed architecture firm, Snowheda. I wanted to ask Chef Keller what made the French Laundry so successful. And what would you say uh, if I asked you a 30,000 foot view question, you know, why do you think the French Laundry at, at first was so successful? You know, what would you say, you know, when they write the history books of food, um, you know, and there's there's that entry uh, 250 years from now, uh, right. Uh, I don't know, downloading a book into their brain. Why do you think they're going to say and then there was the French laundry and it was successful because. Yeah, so that's a really good question. I mean, you know, <clears throat> timing is everything. Um, I'd I'd worked up until, you know, 1994 you know, or 1992 you know, which was, you know, a period of almost 20 years, you know, trying to get to this place, right? This French laundry, um, not realizing that was it, but, you know, trying to get there, um, you know, with, with more failure, more failures than successes. Um, why did the French, why did the French laundry all of a sudden, you know, work, you know, what, 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 what was it that has, um, garnered such respect, such, such, such a reputation, um, for not only, you know, fine food, but service and, 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 and the staff, the team, the individuals that have come through that restaurant and have been influenced by that restaurant and they've gone out and influenced others. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it was, it was a restaurant already that had, had success and notoriety, right? I mean, it would open in 1978 and Don and Sally Schmidt opened the French Laundry. Uh, anything, anytime you read about Napa Valley in any food magazine or travel magazine, you know, the French Laundry was part of where to go, you know, where to eat, you know, when you come to Napa Valley. So that it had certain type of a certain level of reputation already. Um, so, you know, my purpose was not to screw that up, but to, to evolve it and to build on that. And I think that was, you know, that's a big part of it is to understand, uh, understand the French Laundry and understand what, you know, what we could do to modify it without changing it and to evolve it over time 
and I think that's that's that was the the, the foundation of our success is basically not to screw it up um, and 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 really embrace this idea of of fine dining in in a um, in a country environment. Uh, the French already lend, lend itself to that. It's very modest uh, in its in its uh, in in the building and and the environs right there. Um, and then and then making sure that the team again, you know, ingredients and execution, s- sourcing the best ingredients possible, and and getting the best team right, both in the kitchen and the dining room and the wine team, um, to come together with a common vision and common goals. Uh, to have that sense of respect and responsibility for one another, um, to, to 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 persevere in having uh, having fun at work, right, <laughs> and not and not not being in any way um, intimidated by work, um, and then and then of course again not not intimidating the guests. I think Laura Cunningham, um, my partner, right, um, was a uh, instrumental part in uh, developing the, this. Um, this type of the type of service that you see, you know, in so many places, today. it's this kind of casual elegance, and that's that was really Laura who who ran the dining room, um, and of course, you know, the service aspect of any restaurant uh, is probably the most important aspect of the restaurant. Yes, the food's important, the wine program's important, you know, the 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 design, the comfort is really important. But service can make or break, you know, any anything that happens in, in a restaurant. My food could become better because of the service. My 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 food could be can be diminished because of the service. Uh, so we always work on that. We always make sure that we understand, you know, that service is 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 king in this in this in this approach to what we're doing. Um, and you know, it lives on today in, in what we've done over the past twenty eight years. And I think Laura certainly is the cornerstone of the type of service that we see in so many restaurants today around the country um, in that, in that casual, elegant way. And when it came to, to opening per se in New York, it's sort of been described, you know, as like an East coast interpretation of the French laundry. And I was wondering when that opportunity came up and, and how did it happen? Where did you have any, uh, you know, were, were you worried that, 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 idea couldn't necessarily translate going back to new york uh, where there's so much you know the the you know it's a different city and there's different attitudes and you know did you have any trepidations back then not at all i, I think when we open businesses we don't you know for me at, at least you know and and, and this may be uh, con- contrary to some of what my staff may think about some of the things that we that i decide to do but i don't have any i, I have no trepidations i have no reservations about embracing the ideas that we we, we actually um, fulfill, right? So, the idea of opening in New York City, um, I didn't I didn't view that as you know something that was worrisome or something I didn't think was going to work. Um, I felt very confident in our ability to do that. Um, you know, for a number of different reasons. I mean, number one, when I left New York, people said, "When are you coming back?" You know, like this is your home. You have to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was that was encouraging, but, uh, and also, you know, very, very loving in a way, you know, that New Yorkers thought I was from New York. Um, I came to California, never growing up here, but a true Californian. So I was embraced here pretty, pretty quickly. It was, you know, it's a California. He's, it's a young, one of our, 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 our sons. <laughs> uh, so it's nice to have had these roots in both, uh, in both in New York and California and going back to New York, 
was for me that was really exciting. Um, I met Steve Ross and Ken Himmel, who um, who are the related group um, when they were building the Time Warner Center, uh, which was actually the a- AOL Time Warner Center, if you remember in the beginning. I yeah, do. and um, and that was a time when there was this idea that they wanted to bring French chefs uh, into New York, um, but that didn't work out, and they decided then to refocus their efforts on bringing in American chefs into New York, uh, bringing American chefs to Time Warner Center. And, and it began with me. Um, they chose me because I was recommended by one of a mutual friend and they came out the French Laundry. We met, you know, they enjoyed themselves. We talked about what the, 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 the focus would be, what the goals would be. And, um, and they embraced that. And they were very um, uh, instrumental, of course, in, in our ability to open per se which I thought was just going to be an extraordinary restaurant. And it turned out to be that way. We, you know, that we did so many things um, to prepare per se to open. Um, I think one of the most important things is we closed the French laundry for five months and moved about 30 individuals from different departments and different disciplines to, to New York oh, wow. city um, to spend the, to spend a, that portion of time with the new team um, to, to train and to inoculate that new team with the culture and philosophy of the French Laundry. And I think that really established per se from the beginning um, as a well, um, um, well-organized, efficient, effective restaurant uh, because they had so many individuals that had been working at the French Laundry for such a period of time. And to be able to learn from them um, was extraordinary. And, and that, I don't think that's ever been done before when one restaurant closes to send its team to open another restaurant. Um, but those were the kind of things that we were committed to do. We wanted to make sure that per se had everything it needed um, from the beginning to be successful. So per se, you know, from the day it opened um, was a, you know, was sister to the French Laundry. Uh, unfortunately, you know, seven days later, you know, we had the fire uh, and everything changed. Um, and I was, I was really distraught at that moment um, to the point where, you know, I, I was questioning my, you know, my ability to be there or my desire to be there. Um, we had worked mm. for two years to open that restaurant, had done so much work, um, just everything that had been done to open the restaurant, as you can imagine. Um, and then the fire struck. And it was a moment where, you know, I, again, I was questioning my, you know, my, my purpose, my, my goals um, and, and the position that I was holding. And then I started getting cards from our Asian guest um, congratulating me that we had a fire because in Asia, if you have a, if you have a fire in your restaurant, it means success. (laughs) So it's funny how quickly you could change perspective. And, you know, like three days later, I was like, okay, this is great. Let's, 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 let's reinvigorate ourselves. Let's focus on this. Let's, let's make sure that we open our restaurant the second time, right? Better than the first time. And who, whoever gets the chance to open a restaurant twice. Mm. And what, did you change anything? What, what was the biggest change, you think, in that second era? I think one of the things we, we had opportunity to do, because we had been open for seven days, we had, you know, we had a history of business, right? And so our business insurance, business interruption insurance, really paid, played an important role in maintaining the staff that we had spent so much time in hiring and training um, that we were able to to keep them, you know, because they were they were now you know 
part, their 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 compensation was taken care of by business rep insurance. Then we sent them out. We sent them out to the chefs on 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 visits to other restaurants, stages. You know, I mean, Rory um, Rory Herman and uh, Chris Lamadou decided to take a trip up the coast and discovered um, Island Creek Oyster. Right, uh, Skip Bennett in Duxbury, um, um, Massachusetts, and and Skip became and still is our supplier for oysters because they they decided that. Uh, together that Skip could produce an oyster the specific size that we needed for the oysters and pearls. Uh, and so Skip today, you know, raises an oyster a specific sizes just for our two restaurants. So those are the kind of things we wow. send, you know, staff out, wait, wait, wait staff out to work in other restaurants. The sommeliers, you know, went to France or to California, you know, so during this period of time, it was, it was a, a you know, a huge learning opportunity um, for the, our entire staff at the same time. You know, we were there to make any modifications that we felt we missed, right? We we reconfigured one of the tabletops, right, to have shelves underneath it. Seems seems small today, but you know, we couldn't imagine not having those shelves underneath that table, right? We we were mm-hmm. able to to modify the aisleway to make it a little wider, right, which was important uh, for the for the for the thoroughfare, right? So these kinds of things were, we were able to do, um, and you know, we were, no one was able. To we wouldn't be able to do that had we not had the fire. So yes, we came back stronger and better uh, the second time than the first time. You, you, to me anyway, a rare sort of chef restaurateur that puts a lot of attention into great design. And as you mentioned, even going back to Raquel and the video screens and um, thinking about that environment and working with Snowheda on the French Laundry in 2018. Um, where does that sort of? I'm wondering, like, where does that sort of passion for like great design come in to to think like to to think on that level uh about you know the success of a restaurant yeah and that's a great question thank you so design has always been important for me i you know i as a youngster i wanted to be an architect um so i think i've always had this 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 design kind of bug in me um i've been very fortunate to you know have had the opportunity to to design many different things a lot of our uh, a lot of our serviceware, you know, at, at the French Laundry, you know, our cookware, um, you know, has been designed by uh, by myself. So there's there 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 has been uh, this um, this um, kind of different side of Thomas Keller, where you know I've been a designer, and it's 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 been very very um, um, very exciting, and and certainly I've enjoyed it very much, and we continue to. To work on design, you know, we designed with Christoffel, um, which is a very famous uh, silver manufacturer in, in France. We designed with Renault uh, for our porcelain, uh, and ex- extended beyond that. You know, we work with a, a company in Korea now uh, to design some of our serviceware. We have now a, a local artisan here in Napa Valley um, working with ceramics, who are producing things for us. So, you know, we continue to explore, you know, this uniqueness about design. We want to be able to express that in our restaurants and, 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 and through that, give our guests, you know, a unique experience um, dealing with what, their water glass or their, their truffle, their truffle bowl. Um, and then our, our staff to give them, you know, the equipment that they need, whether it's the knives that I've designed or the cookware uh, that we use. And of course you mentioned Snowheda. Um, so to be able to actually make an impact at the French Laundry beyond just the historic building that the French Laundry's in, 
um, has been really, um, uh, for me, a, a very exciting opportunity. And Craig, Craig Dykers, you know, one of the principals of Snowetta and I became friends years ago. And, and when I asked him to design um, the new uh, the new buildings of the French Honor, he asked me a simple question. He said, well, what's your vision? I gave him two pictures. I gave him a picture of the Louvre uh, pre-IMP and the Louvre post-IMP because the French Honor, like the Louvre, and I don't want to bring them too close together but because they're different, but you know, they are they are a time and place, right? Each one of them is from a time and place. Each one of them is historic uh, in, in their landmark. Each one of them can't be modified because of that historic nature. Uh, and so, you know, I, what IMP did was build the pyramids in front um, and, and Craig took the, this inspiration uh, and built our two new buildings for us. And again, you know, working with, with this idea of, of creating this juxtaposition between uh, the, the, the historic elements uh, of, of the French Laundry and the contemporary elements of our, our new buildings. Uh, sustainability has always been really, really important for us. And, you know, we, we have our own gardens. We have three different gardens here in Napa Valley. Um, one really across the street, but you know we've also introduced um, geothermal loop into our kitchen in 2004 um, to to control all of our uh, all of our heat and and um, uh, heat and cooling systems. Um, I think we're the only restaurant in in, in America, or maybe the only restaurant in the world, uh, that all heating and cooling is done through a geothermal loop system. We you know we in, um, enhanced that in 2017 when we went from eight bores to 32 bores, you know, going into our system. Um, you know, we introduced uh, solar power um, to our new building in 2017, producing 16 kilowatts of electricity uh, every day. Uh, the siding on our buildings, you know, are, 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 um, are finished in a way we don't have to use paint. Um, so it's, a, it's a, a unique Japanese technique where they burn the wood and once it's sealed, it just, it stays that way. Uh, and so these are things that we've, really worked hard to do in, in design, not just in design, but in designing, you know, designing in a, in a responsible, sustainable way um, and creating, you know, creating work environments that are safer, right? Our floors in our kitchen, you know, are terrazzo. And the beautiful, beautiful about that is we were able to, to finish it to a point that has a, has a higher slip resistance than any tile that could be, um, that is available for commercial use. Uh, you know, so these are things that we've done and there's so many different, there's so many smaller things as well that have added to, um, you know, the sustainability of the purpose of our restaurants. That's amazing. Did you have a, an architectural hero before when you, when you thought about being an architect? No, that's a good question. No, I, I didn't, you know, thinking back, um, um, there wasn't, there wasn't really necessarily, well, it may have been, it may have been, uh, Richard Meyer, um, or, or Robert okay. Stern. You know, when I when I start to think okay. about the two, both of them totally different in terms of their architectural approach. Um, um, okay. Both of them American, uh, and and that was something that was really important to me. Um, you know, it's uh, I I love I love um, you know I, I truly love our country, uh, and you know, my father served uh, in World War II in Korea, um, so I have a, a, a great sense of um, patriotism um, and to to. To, to our country and to those who have defended it uh, and are very um, grateful for that. And just as I would ask, you know, a, a designer or an architect what their, uh, what their own home is like, uh, I'm curious, like, what is Chef 
Keller's uh, diet like? I mean, you're someone who is surrounded by food. How I know I would uh, be 500 pounds in a minute. Uh, what is your diet like? What do you like to eat? What is your what is your what you have a day off and like what would you well, I, I like a lot of things. I mean, I like like a young American, right? Who 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 grew up, you know. Mickey D's was going out to dinner for us as as kids, right? You know, and and that was that was part of it. You know, sitting around, you know, in front of the TV with our with our TV dinner stands, right? Those and 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 having this was before what you know the the TV dinners that we have today. I mean, these were back in the Swanson days. Where there were no, what I co- I don't know what they're called, man eaters or whatever they are. Right? You know the 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 big the big the, the, this was just a, you know you had fried chicken or Salisbury steak and mashed potatoes and carrots with a little uh, a little apple kind of compote in in the center there. And those were exciting those were exciting days for you know for us and how and how that worked as young as youngsters. So we grew up in that kind of culture and that kind of that kind of food convenience food was was important right uh, in that period of time. Um, and we didn't really have the expression of the f- fresh food that we have today, um, and certainly in our household, which was you know lower low to middle lower middle class, and with a single parent um, who didn't who wasn't home in the evening to cook for us, it was mostly what my older brothers would kind of oversee. We would eat or not eat, and that was kind of our life. And so you know, for me, what's my daily? What's my day like? So you know, typically in the morning, it's it's either um you know uh, soft boiled eggs two 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 soft boiled eggs um with olive oil and and uh and a cup of coffee that's kind of my my morning routine um how do you make your coffee i'm curious uh well <laughs> in a machine it's a very it's a okay. it's a very elementary you know it's a pod, it's a pod machine a pod yeah. machine okay you know I, I i i'm not trying to i'm not trying to um have the uh, i i guess the most um refined uh, experience in, in my morning. I'm trying to be, you know, as, as quick as possible and get as much nutrient as I can possibly can. So, yeah, so protein for me is important. And, and sometimes, you know, I'll introduce some oatmeal, um, with a soft boiled egg, right. But trying to get as much protein as I possibly can. And that nourishment that keeps me going for the first part of the day, which is important. Um, and then, and then lunch and dinner is typically in the, in, in the restaurant, a family meal, um, you know, every day, at uh, at eleven fifteen, you know, we have family meal at the French Laundry, and it's always a protein. Uh, it's always begins with a salad, the vegetables, starch, protein, and dessert. You know, so I'll have I'll, I'll typically have lunch there, and probably four three to four days a week I'll have dinner uh, at the French Laundry. We eat dinner at uh, three forty five, um, so it's a very early dinner. Uh, it's a very early dinner, which is you know really good you know from a health point of view to eat early. Um, and then there's, you know, two or three nights a week where, you know, I'll go out, Laura and I will go out. We'll typically, you know, have dinner at uh, one of the restaurants here in Yonville um, where we kind of stay close to home and it's either Bouchon, Ad Hoc, uh, La Calenda, um, where, where we'll have dinner. And, uh, and that's, kind of, that's kind of the routine um, here in Yonville. Thank you to Chef Keller, Sky Morgan at PR Consulting, and the entire team at the French Laundry for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Mm